Welcome to the Same Side Selling Podcast, dedicated to modern sales and marketing, innovation, and leadership. Here's your host, Ian Altman. Hey, it's Ian Altman. Welcome to the Same Side Selling Podcast. Our guest today is Hall of Fame speaker, Stephen Shapiro, and we're talking about innovation and solving problems. Stephen led a 20,000-person innovation practice at Accenture. Since then, he's written six books on innovation, including Best Practices Are Stupid, which was named the Best Innovation and Creativity Book of the Year by 800 CEO Reed. I think they're now called Porchlight. We're talking about his latest book, Invisible Solutions, 25 Lenses That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems. It launches March 3rd. We'll discuss the greatest misconception about innovation, the greatest mistakes when trying to solve difficult challenges, whether innovation is a right-brain or left-brain exercise, and specific ways you can apply some of the 25 lenses to reframe problems and tap into innovation. Here's my interview with Stephen Shapiro. Stephen Shapiro, welcome back to the Same Side Selling Podcast. It's awesome to be here. Thanks, Ian. Can you start by sharing something surprising about you that our audience may not know? Uh, you know, most people who know me see me as this sort of outgoing, creative person. And the thing that a lot of people don't know is I'm actually a strong introvert and I was a member of the math club. Uh, not, not something most people brag about, but uh, that's the truth. A member of the math club. Now, did you have a senior position and executive role in the math club or were you kind of a member at large? <laughs> I was more of a member at large. Okay. Uh, I was good, but I wasn't good enough to be on the, the, the highest level of the math club. I was sort of so, in the wannabe group. So in the math club, you were more responsible for addition and subtraction, maybe occasionally multiplication, but you weren't getting into the like, you know, higher level calculus or anything like that. From what I recall, I, I, I barely got by, but uh, it was still fun. <laughs> I love it, though. And, and you know what? In the introvert side, the, the fascinating thing for me is here you are, somebody who is a Hall of Fame speaker. And I think that most people have the misconception that people who are talented, successful professional speakers are all extroverts, which um, no big shock to anybody. I I'm pretty strongly in the extrovert category. And yet some of my friends who were absolutely brilliant on stage and you fall into that category are introverts. And I often find that fascinating. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is I actually talked with somebody many, many, many years ago because I was I was curious, why is that the case that I'm an introvert? And one of the things that he said uh, was that there's a difference between keynote speakers who are on stage and trainers. He said a lot of actors and speakers are actually introverts because the act of being up on stage is separate from the audience. Whereas trainers, you're sort of in the middle of it all. And it's a much more extroverted, whether that's true or not. I don't know, but when I'm done with the speech, I give it up my all and I am so tired. I just need to hang out by myself and recover. You know, that's, that, it's actually absolutely fascinating that you share that because I, I've never understood it, but there's, there's a subset of speakers that I fall into, which is people who are comfortable on big stages, doing keynotes, and also comfortable in those highly interactive groups, whether it's training, masterclass, things like that, that are highly interactive. And people ask me, why is that? And I said, I don't know, because people are different. And I never really thought about the, the rationale behind it. And now I feel like I understand maybe some of it. So that's, uh, 
that's a pretty cool thing. Um, so obviously, I wanted you to talk about the the concepts in Invisible Solutions, your latest book. And it's one of those things that's just captivating. I remember reading it and was like, all right, let me take a look at it. And then all of a sudden, my wife's looking at me like, well, you know, honey, you going to sleep? I'm like, well, I'm reading this book. Well, do you need it for tomorrow? No, I'm just like, I'm, I'm hooked on it now and I got to finish it. And so you're, you're to blame for that. Um, but what's, what, and, and a lot of it centers around this principle of finding solutions and innovation. What's the greatest misconception that you feel people have when it comes to innovation and solving problems? So when it comes to innovation, it sort of ties back to uh, the, the math club thing I started with is people hear the word innovation and they assume that it is this right-brained creative endeavor that is for the privileged few, the, the people who are bored with this creative gene. And one of the things that I've discovered is that innovation is actually a left-brained analytical process. And in many cases, the engineers of the world, like I am, are sometimes the best equipped to do innovation because innovation isn't just about coming up with wacky ideas. It's actually about solving important problems and finding very powerful solutions that ultimately get implemented. All right. So right about now, half our audience is saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're telling me that this innovation stuff is not right brain. It's more left brain critical thinking. So I got to ask you, um, explain yourself. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> where, where are you going? So I, I have two perspectives on innovation. The first one is the process. The process of innovation is it starts with an issue, problem, challenge, or opportunity and ends with the creation of value. So it doesn't start with ideas, which is where a lot of people think it does. The, the problem is if you start with ideas, we create a lot of wasted energy in the system. But if you can identify important problems, differentiating problems, opportunities that if you could take advantage of them would create the greatest value and you rally around finding solutions to that, you will get much higher level of value. And so, you know, what that means is we need to figure out what the right questions are. And the right questions, it's an analytical process. You need to have data in order to know what the right problems are, then you can find the solutions. Uh, and to me, at the end of the day, it's all about being relevant. And we need to have data to know how are we going to stay relevant. Yeah, and, and I, I remember from last time we were on the show, we had a discussion about the idea of people um, and their luggage at the airport. And you, you told this story, and, and you know what? And, and I'll let you give the abridged version. People can listen to that prior episode. But this was kind of a fascinating lens to look through in terms of solving a problem. And of course, in the book, you have about 25 of these different perspectives or, or so-called lenses and how to solve problems. But give us an abridged version of that. And I'm sure we'll have other examples to share too. Sure. So the, the very, very short version of the baggage claim story, airport here in the US, passengers complained it took too long for their bags to arrive. So they did some analysis and found that it was taking 15 to 20 minutes to get the bags from the plane to the baggage carousel decided to speed up the bags, spent a lot of money, didn't get a lot of results. So even though they did cut the time in half, people were still upset. And what they discovered was that at this airport, it took eight minutes for the passengers or the bags to get from the plane to the uh, baggage claim, but the passengers only took one minute. So instead of speeding up the bags, they slowed down the passengers. And it just, it shows you the power of changing a question because you could say, how can we speed up bags? How can we slow down passengers? We could ask a different question, which is how do we reduce wait time or how can we improve the wait experience? Each of these questions, even though they're subtly different, give you a completely different range of solutions. Yeah. So, so in other words, the, the, the knee jerk reaction was, 
well, we need to speed up the way the bags get there. And the reality is if they had, if they had hired a juggler to hang out in baggage claim and entertain people while their bags were there, people probably would have been frustrated that they were waiting for their bags or a magician or, you know, or, or, um, or, or whatever, a, um, you know, a, an improv troupe, whatever, or it's okay. How do we make it so that we give people a longer route to get there? And now their bags are already waiting and they go, wow, this place is great. Their bags come out so quickly. No, no. They just looped you through a whole series of challenges, you know, maybe they integrate this with the tough mutter people. When you come off the plane, (laughs) you go through a skills challenge. And then by the time you get there, you're tired, you've had some good exercise and your bags are ready. I love that. I love that. Actually, you know, and one of the things which people, when I, when I tell this story, some people come up to me and they say, well, you know, so instead of speeding up the bags, they slow down the passengers. So you're penalizing everybody. You're even penalizing the people who aren't waiting for bags. So you could take that question and say, well, how do we slow down the passengers who checked bags? One idea could be if you checked your bag, you sit in the back of the plane. So it takes you longer to get off the plane. So there's a lot of different ways. If you think about Uber and Lyft, you're waiting for your car. What do we do? We stare at our phone watching that little car dot move across the screen. Well, it keeps us busy. It keeps us entertained. What if we did something like that for baggage claim? So there's so many different ways to you know, find a, a solution to a problem. So what are, what are the traps that people fall into? Because obviously business or businesses, when it comes to innovation, are constantly thinking, how do I solve this problem? Or maybe they're not thinking that. But what, what are the traps when people are trying to take an innovative approach? What are the, what are the mistakes that they make? What are, what are the paths they go down that aren't going to result in a good outcome? I'll give you two. I mean, the first one is uh, the suggestion box mentality. And this is what most people think about when it comes to innovation. So they'll have an idea management system. They'll do hackathons, whatever it is. And they ask people for their ideas. And my perspective is asking for ideas is a bad idea. Everybody has an opinion, suggestion, or idea. It doesn't mean it's good. So we create a lot of wasted energy in doing that. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing is confusing innovation with ideas. Okay. The second thing is that in order to find a solution to a problem, sometimes the best way is to not focus on the solution, but it's actually to focus on the problem. So coming back to the baggage claim example, if you immediately said, I need to solve the problem, how do I speed up the bags? You've automatically eliminated any possibility of slowing down passengers, improving the weight experience, things of that nature, which might be on the periphery. There may be obvious solutions in hindsight, but when we don't take the time to question our questions, we don't end up with good solutions. And, and, using, and using that baggage claim example, it very well could have been the fact that someone said, well, we're getting a lot of complaints about people waiting for bags. And instead of saying, why is that a problem? People said they jumped to the solution instead of the underlying, instead of saying, well, what's the real problem? Well, the real problem is people are sitting around waiting and they have nothing to do. Okay. Well, so how could we solve that? We could give them something to do. We could make it so they're waiting less time. So how can we have them wait less? Well, we could speed up the bags or we could delay their progress to get to the bags, or we could provide entertainment to them. Like, in other words, you start thinking through how you can solve the underlying problem instead of, it it sounds like the biggest mistake is people jump to the first 
um, potential solution as the only solution. I, I would say it's even more insidious than in that they jump to the first potential question as the only question, uh, which then leads them to a limited number of solutions. And here's the cool thing is when you change the question, you also change the range of potential uh, places to look for solutions. So, for example, let's just keep on riffing on the baggage claim thing here. If you were to ask the question, who are the experts in wait time? It's probably not airports, but I live in Orlando. It's a place where people pay a ton of money to stand in line to wait to go on rides. So if you think about who are the experts in wait, it's not airports, it's the theme parks. And if you look at what Universal Studios and what Disney does to either reduce the wait time or improve the wait experience, they spend so much energy on those because if they can't improve the wait experience or reduce the wait time, people are going to stop going. And so they're masterful at that. So when you're trying to solve a problem, when you start looking at it from this lens, you now start looking to other places for potential solutions. Got it. And so, so, so that the, those two areas of one is the suggestion box idea of, well, Hey, throw out your ideas that, you know, we all know, you know, if you ask, if you ask three people for opinions, you're going to get four of them. And usually, usually there's very little overlap or intersection. A lot of times people fall into that axis displacement disorder where they believe the axis of the earth has shifted and now the world revolves around them. So it's <laughs> focusing on their issues and what they want. And then this other idea of people immediately focusing on the solution rather than thinking about what the underlying problem is. So when people fall into that trap, that obviously leads them to potential solutions that aren't the right solutions. What are some of the different approaches on how they can get a better outcome? And I know that in the book, you cover 25 different approaches. Um, I look at it almost like seeing the world through different lenses, hence this notion of invisible solutions. But what are the things, what are, what are some of your favorites that can help people really transform the way they think about these sorts of problems, solutions, and innovations? Yeah. So, and that, that's a great way to describe it. I think it was a mental kaleidoscope. You're working on a problem. And if you were to look at that problem through a a kaleidoscope and you keep on turning it, you're going to see different things. I just got my eyes checked the other day and, you know, they're flicking through the different lenses and can you see the letters now? Can you see the letters now? No, I can't. And all of a sudden you can see them. Well, it's the same thing with the questions. And so there are 25 lenses. Uh, I, I love all my lenses, but uh, <laughs> there are some that they're like I, children. They're like children. They're like I mean, children. You know, exactly. You don't have to pick a favorite, but but which one stands out to you most recently? <laughs> so there are two that I was using with somebody in the movie industry. I can't get into the details of it, but there were two lenses that were transformative in the conversation. Uh, one of them was the resequence lens, and the resequence lens says a lot of times we assume that timing is fixed. Something has to happen before something else. And with a resequence lens, we have really three options to shift timing. We can predict what's going to happen. So instead of waiting until something actually occurs, we could actually predict and then make decisions earlier in the process. Or we could postpone, which is exactly the opposite. Or we could do things in parallel. And when you use that one lens, if if the problem you're working on has anything to do with timing or sequence, that's an incredibly powerful lens because it allows you to either wait to get better data or it allows you to take faster action by making predictions. So it's, so, it's really useful. So can, can you share an example of that, of that resequence lens and like just give a scenario of how that work? I want to make sure that the audience can, can, as people are listening to it, they go, ah, I totally get how that could apply. 
Well, I'll just give you a sort of a mundane example. So if you think about McDonald's, okay. during peak times, you know, you go to McDonald's, you'll typically see the little heating lights and everything is pre-made because they know they're going to be selling X number of Big Macs during peak hours. Uh, so that is predicting. That is predicting what people want. And we're going to make to the prediction during slow times, they will postpone and they will wait for you to come in and they will make it to order at that point. So you think about, for example, paints. Paints are a great example of uh, postponing a decision. They used to have to predict what colors people are going to want when we go into the hardware store, but now they're able to postpone the decision because people come in and say, I want this weird shade of purple. Can you make it for me? And they make it real time. So they postpone the process of coloring the paint. They just start with a clear base. You know what? That's that's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about it that years ago you would go in and the paint store would have 50 different colors. And now they have every color you could possibly imagine because you can create your own custom color on the fly and they, they mix it on the fly. And it's interesting. We had to do a touch up in, uh, in, in one of our rooms and we went there and ordered the exact same paint. Of course you put it on and it's not exactly the same. We said, what happened? They said, well, you know, over five years, the paint on your wall fades or gets darker or whatever changes based on the environment. And, and I don't know if it's true, but it certainly makes you buy more paint. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the really cool thing is you can actually take a paint chip. So from that wall, you can take yep. a paint chip and they will match the paint. Even if it's not one of their standard colors, they will yep. match it to that. So that's just a great example of, of postponing a decision uh, until later. And what it does is it reduces the amount of waste. Because uh, if you predicted, first of all, there's less flexibility, less variability, uh, but there's there's also more waste. If I if I thought blue was going to be a very popular color, and I had in my stores, you know, a thousand cans of blue, and everybody wanted, you know, chartreuse or something, well, now I've got a lot of wasted uh, paint. Yeah, got it. Okay, so that's that's one of the lenses. Pick another one, and obviously, you know, we, we're not going to go through all twenty five lenses. And that's a great reason for people to get the book and hopefully they'll, they'll be as captivated as, as I was in reading the book. But what's another one that people can use and apply in their business? And, and if you want to, you can even think of it as if an organization is growing, if they're looking at, gee, my sales aren't growing or I don't have as much demand for my products right now, you know, a lens that might help people put that into perspective. Sure. I mean, there, there's a few. I mean, one, one of my favorite lenses is actually the variations lens. And, and okay. the reason why I love this lens is it was based on advice I received when I was working uh, at Accenture about 30 years ago. And as we were designing computer systems, uh, the, the manager I was working for at the time said, you design to handle the exception, not for the exception. And I think what ends up happening in a lot of cases is we build sort of these one-size-fits-all strategies where we handle the rarest cases with the most complex level of processing, and we apply that to everything else we do. So, for example, call centers. Uh, If call centers, we've done studies on this, a number of call centers, what they did was they started off assuming that all calls were, you know, there was a financial services company, an insurance company, claims. So in the call center, they assumed all claims were complicated and we need to go through this rigorous process. And so we need specialists who would go through and there were a lot of handoffs. And basically when they realized that 60% of their claims were actually 
so slam dunk, stupid, simple, they could have anybody handling it, uh, potentially even technology, they were able to cut the time down, the cost time, and they increased their profitability significantly uh, by creating variations in the way that they handled particular situations. So, so the perfect scenario there is using the old school method, people would say, oh, well, you know, the, the thing is we, we have some really complicated claims. So how do we get all of our claim specialists up to speed on handling these really complex situations? And that was maybe the way they would have tried to solve it in the past. And through this lens of variation, instead what you're saying is, okay, so we do have some really complex um, claims. What percentage of our claims are really complex? Oh, about, about 8%. All right. What's a question we can ask early on to determine if it's going to be complex and then route those 8% to a specialist in complex claims to lower the speed and complexity for the other 82% or 92%? Right. Exactly right. Exactly right. So if, if we recognize that if we design for the most common examples, the most common occurrence, and then we design to handle the exception, but not for the exception, we we will always create a, a higher level of performance. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost like instant replay in sports. And as controversial as it is, they basically said, okay, what are the plays that are the highest impact? Those are the ones we're going to look at replays on. Now, many of us have seen that be implemented and we think, okay, how'd they get it wrong after watching the replay, which is a whole other issue. But the right. idea is you can't, you can't go to the instant replay on every single call because the games would last three weeks. Then, then it would be, then it'd be like cricket. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> they're long enough as it is. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so where, where should people start? So if people are saying, look, you know what, we need to do a better job of innovation and short of, okay, yeah, we need to have Stephen come in and, and speak to our organization to learn about how to, how to unleash innovation or organization in a smart way. Where should people start? Um, if they want to make a difference in innovation in their business? I think that the first thing is, is to make sure that everyone in your organization becomes masterful at asking better questions. And, and I'm not talking about generic questions. Uh, there's a lot of books on that, but I'm, I'm talking specifically about problem statements, opportunity statements, uh, and, and make sure that people understand that what they think is the solution may not be the right solution and might not even be solving the right question. So when you can get your entire organization understanding the fact that whatever you're working on, put a pause button on it, stop for a moment and ask, what's the real problem we're solving? And can we reframe that problem to come up with different solutions? Here's the really cool thing is sometimes the most complex problems where we're struggling to find solutions by reframing the problem, the solutions become obvious. And that to me is the fastest way to unleash innovation inside of an organization. That's great. So it's, it's, and it really comes back to that message of don't overcomplicate things and get to something simple. It's, it's, it's interesting because in the, in the, in the model of sales, one of the principles I teach is that first we understand the problem that people are trying to solve. And the question that we ask to find out what we're really trying to solve is, so what happens if you don't solve that? Hmm. Because sometimes the answer is, well, nothing, it's no big deal. Then let's not kill ourselves trying to solve something that has no impact in the organization. But if someone said, oh, well, the problem is that this, this impedes our ability to, to get this product to market and we're going to lose market share, okay, then our real problem is not this piece of technology. Our real problem is time to market. 
So now we understand exactly. we're trying to solve a time to market issue. We're not trying to solve a, you know, a Ouija board issue or a whiteboard issue. We're trying to, we're trying to figure out how to solve this time to market issue. That, that is so spot on. That's exactly, you know, the, the, the premise here is by changing the question, you change the answers. Uh, and most people, I mean, there's a quote that's attributed to Einstein. He reputedly said, if I had an hour to save the world, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem, one minute finding solutions. That's and, brilliant. Yeah. And, and you know, working with my clients, one of the things which it seems as though is they're spending 60 minutes solving the wrong problems. So it's not just reframing problems. It's making sure we prioritize our problems. I always say innovate where you differentiate. You can't Love solve it. every problem. You can't be the best at everything. So how are we going to prioritize? Love it. Absolutely love it. Hey, Stephen, what's the best way for people to learn more about what you're doing and connect with you? Uh, if you want to learn about the book, it's invisiblesolutionsbook.com. And uh, there you'll be able to actually download a cheat sheet, which has uh, a sample of the lenses. So you can get a, a chance to play around with those. Uh, or steveshapiro.com is the best place to find out more about me. Absolutely wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. And I learned a lot. And if other people didn't, they're just not asking the right questions. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> Thanks. Stephen shared so many great insights. Here's my quick recap of what you can apply and use in your business right away. First, innovation is not a right brain creative exercise. It's actually a left brain process. Second, ideas and suggestions might work against innovation. Instead, focus on the underlying problem you're trying to solve. Like the airport, be sure you are solving the correct problem. The third thing that jumped out, experiment with the 25 different lenses in the book. Stephen shared the lenses of resequence and variations. I loved his point about designing to accommodate an exception. Don't design around the exception to the rule. I often see this in poorly designed sales plans and expense reimbursement policies where people are designing the plan around those one or two people who don't follow the rules. And finally, remember that innovation is about asking better questions. Remember, this show gets its direction from you, the listener. If there's a topic I should cover or a guest I should have on the show, just drop me a note to ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, especially your customer. Bye now.